Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's great to be with you once again. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is Wednesday, July 26th. We're continuing in our Bible study of 1 Timothy. Today, we're going to study a really long section of scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, all the way to chapter 6, verse 2a. And we're going to talk about advice about widows, elders, and slaves. But before we get to all of that, would you join me in an opening word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, thank you so much for the privilege you've given us again to come together and study your word. Lord, I thank you for all that have come to join today. Father, we ask your blessing on this time. Open our hearts and minds to receive your truth. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bible or Bible app to 1 Timothy, starting with chapter 5, verse 3. We're going all the way to chapter 6, verse 2a. And let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they will be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children and take care of their homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. For I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you're sick so often. Remember, the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment, but there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In the same way, the good deeds of some people are obvious, and the good deeds done in secret will someday come to light. Now let's cross over to 1 Timothy 6 and look at verses 1 through 2a. 
all slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. All right, we're going to go back and look at verses 3 through 16, and we're going to talk about Paul's advice regarding widows. Let's pick it up with verse 3. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. Here's our first question. In this verse, Paul builds upon the treatment of older women as mothers and younger women as sisters, what we talked about last week in verse 2, and he changes the discussion to that of widows. What is Timothy to do regarding the widows in his congregation? In Timothy's day, a widow was usually unable to support herself. There were no pensions, no social security, no life insurance, and few honorable jobs for women at that time. But the care of widows was apparently becoming a major burden in the congregation in Ephesus, and it called for clarification as to who really was a widow and qualified for support. Paul advised Timothy to identify those widows who had no one else to care for them. The responsibility for caring for the helpless naturally falls first on the families, the people whose lives are most closely linked with theirs. Paul stressed the importance of families caring for the needs of widows and not leaving it for the church to do, so that the church can care for widows who have no families. A widow who had no children or other family members to support her was doomed to poverty. The church should care for such widows, meaning both respectful help and material support. Next is verse 4. It says, But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. The question is, what responsibility does Paul say the family of a widow has, and what would be their motivation? A widow who had children or grandchildren should be able to look to them for support. Our parents watched over us when we were helpless. We ought to do no less for them in return. Family members should look after their parents and grandparents. Paul affirmed this as basic common sense understood even by those who were unbelievers. Paul wanted Christian families to be as mutually supporting as possible. He insisted that children and grandchildren take care of the widows in their families, for this would show godliness at home and it would please God very much. God is pleased when we care for our family members' needs. God underscores the importance of fulfilling these duties by connecting them with the promise of personal benefits in the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor certainly involves more than providing care in old age, but the caring treatment of our seniors is part of God's plan. Next, look at verses 5 and 6. They say, Now a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead even while she lives. The question is, this verse sets up a spiritual contrast regarding the lives of two kinds of widows. Can you explain? The true widow is alone in this world, that is, destitute, with no one else to turn to for help. However, a Christian widow could turn to the church, setting her hope in God. The widows that the church should support are described as women who dedicated themselves to God and pray night and day. Anna the prophetess fits this description. Luke 2 verses 36 and 37 read, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God and fasting in prayer. The contrast between the two kinds of widows is like this. A true widow lives trusting God and ministering to others. She's not wrapped up in self-pity, 
but she finds a place of effective service beginning with prayer for others. Meanwhile, the other widow is lost to a self-centered lifestyle that Paul described as spiritually dead. Unlike their duties to the dedicated widows described in verse 5, the church was not to support widows who used their widowhood to live only for pleasure or resorted to immoral means of supporting themselves, possibly a reference here to prostitution, practically the only job a woman could find in the New Testament times. A woman who used her life chasing after pleasure was spiritually dead. Obviously, such widows should not be supported by the church. Paul's instructions establish a really strong case for wise assistance. The widow's choices define the ministry the church can have in her life. Honoring and assisting a widow who lives for pleasure would enable her to do wrong, but correcting her and offering forgiveness through repentance could still be an effective ministry for the church. Next, let's look at verse 7. It reads, Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. Here's the question. Paul's commands regarding widows were not for Timothy alone. Who were these commands for and why? Here Paul teaches him to give these instructions found in verses 1 through 6 to all the house churches of Ephesus. Paul's reason for this is to keep the churches from reproach. They are to be commanded to follow these instructions to live without reproach in their church and community. James 1.27 presents a similar theme regarding the church's role toward widows. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Jesus personally condemned those who mistreated widows. His own mother Mary was likely a widow since Joseph is not mentioned during the years of Jesus' ministry. And based on what we read in the Gospels, it seems Mary's other children, Jesus' brothers and sisters, were not yet following him. Churches which do not adequately care for society's most vulnerable are subject to criticism. Next, verse 8, it reads, But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. The question is, in the previous verse, Paul had in mind the church as a whole. In this verse, Paul turns more directly to individuals, particularly men. What is his point? Paul is saying that those who can provide for their families are obligated to do so. Paul repeats the theme he used in verse 4, beginning with a conditional statement. More specifically, Paul directed his command in verse 4 toward people caring for members of their own household. While it may not be possible for one person to care for every relative, even unbelievers in Paul's day understood that a child's responsibility is to care for their widowed mother. The second half of the condition in this verse provides the consequences consisting of two parts. First, those who fail to reasonably support their own families are said to have denied the faith. Paul mentioned two men who had denied the faith in 1 Timothy 1, verses 19 and 20. He also spoke about the subject of denying Christ in 2 Timothy 2, verses 12 and 13, and denying Christ's spiritual power in 2 Timothy 3, 5. Christ's command is for believers to love one another and that those who love Christ should follow his commandments. It stands to reason, then, that a person cannot claim to be a committed follower of Christ when they choose not to care for their own families. For the same reason, professing Christians who refuse to care for a widowed family member are considered worse than an unbeliever. This was the ultimate shame for Timothy's audience. To be called an unbeliever would be insult enough. To be called worse than an unbeliever is a purposely derogatory statement. Being cold and callous towards one's family is bad enough. To do this while dragging down the name of Christ and Christianity? That's truly despicable. This is intended to show Timothy and his church members the vital importance of caring for one's immediate family. 
Next verses 9 and 10, they read, A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? Here's our question. Paul's first expectation regarding charity is for the immediate family members to care for each other. We've talked about that, especially when they're able. In these verses, Paul offers a list of three expectations describing the kind of widows the church is obligated to support. What does Paul say are the requirements for a widow to be on this list? First, the widow has to be at least 60 years old. In the Jewish culture of the day, 60 was considered the beginning of old age. Verses 11 and 12 will further explain why this age requirement was important. Younger widows have the ability to remarry. The priority of church charity is to meet the greatest need, and this means the oldest and least self-reliant persons first. Second, she must have been faithful to her husband. This is phrased almost exactly as the requirements for overseers and deacons that we talked about in 1 Timothy 3. The phrase here is hinos andros gyni, literally a one-man woman. Obviously, a widow who remarried should not be receiving assistance from the church. And third, she must be well-respected by everyone because of the good she has done. A woman who has raised children, orphans perhaps, or her own, but somehow could not care for her now, practiced hospitality, helped those in need, established a good reputation for her kindness, and rendered service to the church would be qualified to be on that list of widows. Next, let's look at verses 11, 12, and 13. They read, the younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they'll want to remarry. Then they will be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they're on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about things they shouldn't. The question is, these verses appear to be an overly harsh indictment of young widows, but Paul actually was showing great compassion in this instruction. How would you summarize these verses? The context of this passage reveals two certain concerns Paul had. Number one, some young widows did not qualify for inclusion among the widows under long-term care by the church. And number two, those young widows not under the care of the church should marry and raise a family in a manner honoring to Christ. Paul was concerned that these young widows would become victims of undisciplined desires. If they were put on the list and received full support from the church, these younger, energetic women with too much time on their hands were more susceptible to distractions. Their lack of wisdom that comes with age might lead them to be lazy, doing visitation for purposes of gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business, and talking about things that they shouldn't. The picture here describes women busy accomplishing little good and doing much harm. While this may sound like an extremely negative comment about these women, we ought to note the context and take into account that anyone with too much free time can often get into trouble. Next, let's look at verse 14. It reads, So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. The question is, what is Paul's advice to younger widows in this verse? And was there something more to his words? Paul's advice to these younger widows was simply marry again, if that's an option. Have children, run your homes. As any mother knows, that's enough to keep her busy and out of trouble. Paul had much more in mind here than merely providing a way to keep young widows off the streets. He placed before them a high calling. Note the two specific roles that he envisioned for these women within marriage. 
They were to raise children, in other words, giving them life and then bearing with them along their road to adulthood. But they were to also take care of their homes. This passage agrees with chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 in giving women distinct authority within their homes. In Christ, women have worth and worthwhile roles. The immeasurable importance of training the next generation presents a demanding challenge. The outside community would judge Christianity based on how these young widows conducted themselves. Paul then states that if a woman took care of these responsibilities, the enemy would have no say. What is that about? The enemy here probably refers to Satan and those he uses to tear Christians down. Obviously, young women supported by the church who became local busybodies would not give the church a good reputation in the community, and non-believers would speak against the church and Christians. Satan and his followers would give the believers enough trouble without them bringing it on themselves. Verse 15 is next, and it reads, For I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. The question is, though this verse is short, it actually consists of three main parts. What are they, and how do they apply to what Paul is talking about regarding young widows? First, it refers to a group of people noted by the vague term, some. A few of those in the Ephesian church had already fallen to Satan's temptations. It's unclear whether Paul had specific people in mind, but the immediate context is the dangers of younger women being church-supported widows. In the previous verses, we just talked about the dangers of this, and it seems like Paul is referring to instances where these problems were already becoming a reality. Second, this small group of people had already gone astray. The imagery is of someone leaving a safe path and moving into dangerous or forbidden territory. These individuals had walked off of the path of sound doctrine and godly living as presented by Paul, and instead had listened to false teachings and were living for self. And third, these people had strayed after Satan. They were not merely living for personal gain. They were actively following the plans of the devil. This does not necessarily mean participating in blatant, wanton sin or the like. The devil's schemes can involve simply distracting us or luring us into seemingly harmless mistakes. Even Jesus faced Satan's temptations, and his followers must expect the same. Believers are to be prepared for spiritual battle, yet also know, as Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Verse 16 is next, and it reads, If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must care for them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. Our question is, this verse is Paul's summary and conclusion regarding instruction for widows. What are his instructions? This verse emphasizes that Paul has been specifically speaking to believers in the church. Here he clarifies that Christians are to care for their relatives who were widows, whether believers or unbelievers. Specifically, younger women are commanded in this verse to care for older women who are widows. The group referred to here with the word them could include a mother, grandmothers, and possibly other extended family members. One important reason for this is the fact that the church resources are limited. Money, materials, and manpower are not infinite. This was even more relevant in the persecuted days of the early church. Churches need to concentrate their help on those who are truly widows. Interestingly and importantly, for those who did not qualify, the church is not being instructed to merely send money. They are ordered to care for them as well. This care could include meeting a wide variety of needs, including food, housing, medical care, and other practical needs. A need often forgotten is the concept of care, simple fellowship in other words. Believers need the companionship and closeness of other Christians almost as much as they need food and water.
So that takes care of verses 3 through 16, which talk about widows. Now we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, and talk about Paul's advice to elders and church leaders. Here we go. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. The question is, Paul begins this section by talking about a two-sided honor for elders. What does he mean? Also, how does the reference to an ox figure into this? These elders carried significant responsibilities in their overseeing the congregation. Paul said those who do their work well should be respected and well paid. Paul singled out those elders who carried the dual responsibilities of preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching are closely related. Preaching, literally laboring in the word, involves proclaiming the word of God, explaining its truth, helping learners understand difficult passages, and helping them apply God's word to daily lives. Teaching involves more of an extended training of others in Christian doctrine and the gospel message. These roles carried added importance because the New Testament was not yet available in written form. Elders who worked hard for the believers by adding to their responsibilities both preaching and teaching should be paid a stipend, or a salary, or an allowance, in other words. This was consistent with Old Testament teaching in Deuteronomy 25.4, and then the word of Jesus himself, Matthew 10.10, and Luke 10.7. Now, the word ox might seem a little bit out of place here in the last part of the verse, but actually it's not. It's really appropriate. Oxen often were used to tread out the grain on a threshing floor. The animal was attached by poles to a large millstone. As it walked around the millstone, its hooves trampled the grain, separating the kernels from the chaff. At the same time, the millstone ground the grain into flour. Muzzling the ox would prevent it from eating while it was working. Paul used this illustration to argue that productive Christian workers should receive financial support. Next up, verses 19 and 20, they read, Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it's confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. Our question is, now Paul transitions from honoring elders to how to properly handle accusations against them. What does he say should happen if an elder is accused of something? According to Paul, an accusation was not to be taken seriously unless it was, as he wrote, confirmed by two or three witnesses. This is almost identical to the teachings of the Torah for legal cases, Deuteronomy 19.15, John 8.17, as well as the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 8, verses 15 to 20. In the case of Jesus, he spoke regarding personal sins or offenses instead of misconduct of elders. In those situations, the individual was to be confronted privately first, then by one or two others if this did not resolve the problem, before taking the matter before the church. You can find this in Matthew 18. Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, 1 about dealing with accusations. His teaching to Timothy on this topic appears to be common practice among the churches that Paul influenced. If an accusation was confirmed, discipline was in order. Then if the church leader persisted in that sin, Timothy was to publicly expose the sins and rebuke him. The rebuke must be administered fairly and lovingly for the purpose of restoration, but it will serve as a strong warning to all who see it. The witness and reputation of the church to the outside world, as well as its own inner purity, depended on fair but consistent discipline. Next, verse 21. It reads, I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. 
Here Paul commands Timothy to respond in a specific way in handling the accusations. Here's the question. What does he command Timothy to do? Paul's command to Timothy is to not back down or be timid regarding enforcement of rebuking and removing sinning elders. This would likely be the most difficult work he would face as a church leader, but Paul emphasized that it must be done. The phrase, without taking sides or showing favoritism, is the idea of without bias, meaning Timothy could not favor elders he liked or more harshly judge those he did not. He had to deal with the evidence and facts of each situation. This also harmonizes with the need to only pursue accusations where there is sufficient evidence. In dealing with elders, Timothy could not show partiality. False teachers showed favoritism, but Timothy could not. Christians are not to show favoritism either of any kind. James 2.1 says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? And this also included dealings with church leaders. Next is verse 22. It reads, Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The question is, in addition to dealing with the removal of elders, Timothy is to be careful in selecting elders. What does Paul tell Timothy to do? Haste, in the sense of careless rushing, is often spoken against in Proverbs. Proverbs 14, Proverbs 21, Proverbs 29. Apparently, the laying on of hands was a common tradition during this era for confirming elders in the local church. It was also a tradition that Timothy had experienced, including the hands of Paul, likely in Lystra before first traveling with him. This tradition of laying hands on leaders was certainly picked up from the Jewish tradition of setting apart leaders in the Old Testament, such as Moses and Joshua, in Numbers 27, verses 18 to 23. Timothy is to select elders based on Paul's prior instructions in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. He's not to participate in or even be associated with the sins of others. Paul likely had the false teachers of Ephesus in mind here, since these men wanted to lead yet were unfit to do so. Instead, Timothy was to keep himself pure, a common command given to believers. Next, verse 23, it reads, Don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. The question is, this verse seems to interrupt the flow of the passage. Why did Paul give Timothy this advice? What was going on? This side note addresses Timothy's physical health. Paul had mentioned the importance of physical fitness in 1 Timothy 4.8. Here he speaks regarding Timothy's diet. Timothy apparently did not drink any wine at this point, but consumed only water. Perhaps the drinking water was of poor quality and that led to Timothy's stomach problem and frequent illnesses. So to help, Paul commanded him to drink a little wine. Whatever the extent of Paul's advice here, it gives us insight into Timothy. Paul's kind words to his dear friend show his concern for Timothy's physical well-being. It also demonstrates his awareness that people in ministry function as whole beings and dysfunctions in mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical areas can take their toll on effectiveness. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. They say, Remember the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment. But there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In the same way, the good deeds of some people are obvious and the good deeds done in secret will someday come to light. The question is, picking up directly from verse 22, Paul revealed the key difficulty in the task of choosing good leaders for the church. What is that difficulty? These verses explain why Paul instructed Timothy to choose church leaders carefully. Hasty assessment of men for leadership positions could mean overlooking sins, then unqualified men might be chosen, while qualified men are overlooked. A hard fact is that in time, a man's true personality is revealed. 
for better or for worse. It is far better for the church when leaders are carefully and prayerfully selected. Now, lastly, let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2a. We're going to talk about the last group of people Paul has comments toward, and that is regarding slaves. Let's look at those verses together. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 2a. They read, All slaves should show full respect for their masters, so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Our question is, these first two verses in chapter 6 provide instructions to Christians in Ephesus who lived as bond servants or slaves. What is Paul teaching here? First, let me start out by saying that in the Roman culture of Paul's day, slavery was a deeply rooted institution. It was also widespread since estimates place a number of slaves at 60 million or half the population of the entire Roman Empire. In verse 1, Paul wrote specifically to Christians who were slaves, explaining that their attitude toward even their unbelieving masters should be full respect. Why? For the honor of God, so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. As important as each person is to God, God's honor is to be the utmost priority to the believer. In addition, Paul wanted there to be no excuse for people to reject the gospel based on the negative action of Christians. In verse 2, Paul provides specific instructions for Christian slaves who had a Christian master. Paul explicitly rejects the idea of trying to take advantage of a master's Christian faith or their potential kindness simply because they're a Christian. Instead, such servants should choose to serve all the better. Those with a Christian master were to serve even better and work harder. The final part of verse 2 reads, Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Here Paul makes a bold claim. What is it? Paul says that by the Christian slave serving better and working harder, it directly benefited a brother or sister in Christ. A Christian master is not just an employer or boss, but also part of our family in Christ. Christian slaves were to show love to their fellow believer, even in the role of a slave master. This can be extremely difficult to understand in our modern mindset. I get that. It was probably tough to fully accept in Paul's era as well. However, Christians are spiritual family who are to care for one another unconditionally. All Christians are included in the Bible's teachings to love one another, and the command even applies to Christian slaves in relation to their masters. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of today's study of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, all the way to chapter 6, verse 2. This has been a really long journey today. We've talked about several really significant issues. Paul's talking to three particular people groups and to the glory of God for getting us through. Thanks for staying with us through this journey. Next week, we're going to complete the book of 1 Timothy by studying 1 Timothy 6, picking up with verse 2b through verse 21. And we'll talk about false teaching and true riches and also Paul's final instruction prior to moving into 2 Timothy. Thanks again for being with me today. It's just a joy for me to be with you. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and week. I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.